0: Patrons heard this episode first. You can become a patron too by hitting the link in our show notes or visiting patreon.com slash themurderdiariespod. One of the perks our patrons get is a shout out on an episode. We really want to give a big shout out to Gabriella for buying the entire year. Thanks so much, Gabriella. Welcome back to another episode of The Murder Diaries. I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie.
1: If the name Phil Hartman doesn't already ring a bell for you, I have no doubt that you'll be familiar with at least some of his work. He was a writer, actor, and comedian. Notably in his career, he co-created Pee Wee Herman and landed a spot on SNL where he thrived for eight seasons, during which he became well-loved for his impersonation of Bill Clinton. Phil was a comedic genius who no doubt had years of making people laugh ahead of him. Unfortunately, his life was cut short. The world lost one of its most talented entertainers when he was murdered by the person to whom he promised, till death to us part. This is his story. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Philip Edward Hartman was born September 24th, 1948 in Brantford, Ontario, Canada. We know him by Hartman with one end at the end of the name, but he actually dropped one end from his last name when he began working in Hollywood. When Phil was 10, his family decided to leave Canada and move to the U.S. After a couple of short stretches in Maine and then Connecticut, the family settled in Los Angeles, the city of Westchester to be specific, where he attended Westchester High School. Phil didn't have any trouble making friends, but he never felt like school was really for him. It wasn't his favorite thing. He spent most of his classes trying to make classmates laugh, and he was widely known as a class clown. Even back then, his peers loved his impersonations. It wasn't just the way he was able to speak like famous people. He also seemed to be able to perfectly embody all of their mannerisms and expressions. His delivery was just on point. He once told an interviewer that by the age of 15, he could do John Wayne, Jack Benny, Jack Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson. And knowing what would
0: become Phil's future career, it's no surprise that he had the title of class clown. Phil was a middle child, fourth of eight, and as a child, he often felt overlooked
1: in favor of his louder, more confident siblings. He later revealed in a statement that the source of his desire to entertain others was from middle child frustrations. Quote, I suppose I didn't get what I wanted out of my family life, so I started seeking love and attention elsewhere. In another interview, he commented, quote, I have a passive, people-pleasing, middle-child mentality. After Phil graduated from Westchester High School, he enrolled in an arts program at Santa Monica City College. A couple of years later, in 1969, he decided to call it quits on education altogether. Rather than falling into a traditional 9-to-5 or traveling Phil instead became a roadie with a rock band called Rock and Foo, who were touring at the time. His brother was actually their manager and asked him to join them on the road. While it was fun and offered Phil a lot of really cool opportunities of meeting some really amazing musicians, including Janis Joplin and so many others, the list could go on, he ended up returning to college. This time, he made his way to California State University, Northridge, better known as CSUN. While he was there, he decided to start what we would call today a side hustle. He'd always been gifted with drawing, and at CSUN, he was studying graphic design, so he began to offer graphic design services to students and businesses in the area. This was all happening in the 1970s, so there really weren't freelance platforms that we're used to today. Certainly no Instagram or TikTok to promote yourself. That being said, Phil built his graphic design side hustle by word of mouth. Given that he had toured with a band and had a love of rock music, he found his own little graphic design niche in designing album covers and logos for musicians and bands. Phil went on to design more than 40 album covers for bands like Poco, America, and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Something I found super endearing about Phil while researching for this episode is that Phil would amuse himself by working on his impersonations while he designed those album covers. Just imagine Phil sitting there working on his sketch for Crosby, Steele's Nash & Young, all while chatting away to himself and his best John Wayne. And now a word from today's sponsor. One of the most exciting things about it being a new year is that you have no idea what's in store for you. There could be new travel experiences, new jobs, or even just picking up a new skill. And there's no better way to start 2023 off than by learning a new language. I'm personally doing this right now with Babbel. It's a language learning app that's sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons, you can too. This should come as no surprise, but I'm a pretty big nerd and I love learning new languages. I actually have the highest subscription that Babbel offers. And right now I'm working on Italian. Honestly, you guys, I mean it when I say addictively fun. I
0: literally do it in bed. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages. And like Paige was saying, it is fun. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel, in addition to the lessons you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel.
1: Right now, you can join us in all the fun that Babbel offers and get up to 55 percent off your subscription when you go to Babbel.com/slash diaries. That's babble.com slash diaries for up to 55% off your subscription. Babble, language for life. By 1975, Phil was finished with college and still trying to decide exactly what he wanted to do with his life. He, of course, had his art and his portfolio of album covers, along with his love of rock music and his comedy skills. But he just wasn't sure how to bring all of those together in a career. That was until he started attending night classes with a comedy group by the name The Groundlings. The Groundlings were, and still are, well-known in L.A. for their improvisation and sketch comedy performances, bringing up the likes of such acts as Will Ferrell, Kristen Wigg, Melissa McCarthy, Phil Hartman, of course, Maya Rudolph, and Lisa Kudrow. Phil really enjoyed being involved in the group, as it was both social and creative. Improvisation is by its very nature unscripted and one night while he was watching the group perform, he decided to get right up on stage and join in. He was a hit that night and from then on, he was given the opportunity to both write and perform with the group. In 1978, Phil had his first on-screen appearance in an Australian film and by the next year, he was considered one of the key members of the Groundling crew. He was offered a formal position and with that, Phil Hartman's career as a comedy star had begun. But Phil wasn't in it for the fame. It was just something he genuinely loved to do. Part of the documentary, The Last Days of Phil Hartman, talks about how Phil had two sides to him. This funny, vivacious side and a more recluse side. Later, when asked about his time with the Groundlings, he stated, quote, I more or less started taking workshops for the fun of it. And 10 years later, I was still doing it for the fun of it. During his time with the Groundlings, Phil became quite close with another cast member, Paul Rubens. In 1981, Paul and Phil collaborated to write the character Pee Wee Herman. They pitched the idea for a live stage show centering around Pee Wee. Upon the show's opening, it found rave reviews, and HBO later screened a live stage show for TV. In fact, the Pee Wee Herman show was such a huge success that Phil and Paul then created an entire TV show for children that focused around the character. It was called Pee Wee's Playhouse. While Paul, who had kind of invented the Pee Wee character, played Pee Wee Herman in the show, Phil played the character of Captain Carl. The show was targeted at children and featured a mix of puppetry, clay animation, and live action comedy, all scripted by Phil and Paul. One of those closest to Phil in their interview for The Last Days of Phil Hartman expressed that they felt like Captain Carl was a character that Phil could really relate to. This was a character that portrayed the side of Phil that just wanted to get on his boat and sail away, escaping the stresses of the world. Pee-wee's Playhouse was hugely successful, and if you were a child of the 80s and 90s, you probably remember it, in the U.S. at least. It went on to get a spin-off movie that Phil co-wrote called Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It was similarly successful, and it really cemented his name as a comedic genius. Unfortunately, that's where the adventures of Pee-wee end, because in the late 80s, Paul and Phil had a huge falling out. Phil decided to focus on other projects, and he quit working for the show. Then in 1991, Paul was arrested for indecent exposure and the show was completely canned after five successful seasons. Paul and Phil never
0: spoke to each other again. So now that we know how Phil got his start, let's discuss how he went from children's comedy to Saturday Night Live. The best way to explain the transition is by using
1: Phil's own words. As an actor, I felt I couldn't compete. I wasn't as cute as the leading man. I wasn't as brilliant as Robin Williams. The one thing I could do was voices and impersonations and weird characters, and there really was no call for that, except on Saturday Night Live. In 1986, Phil had just finished his stint writing and acting in the movie pee Big Adventure. Before his fallout with Paul, there was some tension in the relationship, and Phil knew he needed to put his energies elsewhere, so he put his feelers out for other opportunities. He had actually considered quitting acting altogether, as he couldn't see a market for his unique skill set. As he said, he didn't see himself as this uber handsome leading man or as genius as Robin Williams. However, after experiencing some success with his role in the Pee Wee Herman movie, he decided to give acting one more shot. On a whim, he attended an audition for Saturday Night Live, which by then was preparing to film its 12th season.
0: Unfortunately for Phil, while his career was
1: reaching new heights, his love life was quite the opposite. By the time Phil scored his spot on SNL, he was 38 and he had already been married twice and divorced twice. This takes us back to 1970. Phil was 22 and he married a woman by the name of Gretchen. There isn't much information about the relationship, but they divorced just two years later in 1972. Ten years later, Phil found love again, this time with a real estate agent named Lisa. When they got married, Lisa was working while Phil was still working on Pee Wee Herman his stardom not quite at its height yet. Phil was a pretty peaceful and reserved guy, except when he embodied one of his characters on stage. Phil was also really known to fall in love deeply, quickly, and then let it fizzle out as quickly as the flame ignited. Unfortunately, his marriage with Lisa was no different. Lisa explains that literally right after the wedding, he started to express that the feelings just weren't there anymore. In her interview, Lisa explains, quote, he would disappear emotionally. Phil's body would be there, but he'd be in his own world. That passivity made you crazy. And when I'd protest, he'd say, you're getting in the way of my career. And this is who I am and what it's going to be like. On the stage, he was larger than life, but at home, he was withdrawn and quiet. He would nod his head as if he was listening, but Lisa asked him a question about what she'd been saying, and it was like Phil wasn't even in the room. As his network of contacts began to grow, he was invited to more and more social events. Lisa noticed that Phil became more and more withdrawn. After three years, Lisa decided to call it quits on their marriage, and they divorced, although they did stay friends after separating. This is right around the time that Phil was releasing the Pee Wee Herman movie, and he had decided to head
0: in a new direction with his career. Now let's dive a little deeper into his time with SNL.
1: What's funny about Phil's audition for SNL is that he didn't actually really want to be on the show and be famous, while other actors used SNL as a stepping stone to get noticed for lead acting roles, as we've seen with so many SNL cast members throughout the years. Phil's intention with his time on SNL, however, was to use it to increase his credibility and creativity so that he could write. He had a dream of writing big box office movies. Here's what actually happened, though. Phil was a hit on SNL. Just from his audition, producers knew they were onto something with him. Phil was spot on in his impressions, deadpan, and he had this unique ability to create new and interesting characters that had never been seen before. Here's the thing, though. The way SNL works is that the members of the cast are competing with each other for airtime. It's all about who comes up with the best skits, the best characters, and can do the best impressions. While the audience gets to soak up the laughs, behind the scenes, the pressure was relentless. Phil's quoted as stating, The rejection and backstabbing could be painful, but the hardest thing was competing against your friends for airtime. Despite the toxic environment, Phil would stay on with SNL for... Eight seasons. He came to be nicknamed the Glue. Even though the format was competitive, Phil was the guy who would be the first to help his castmates. He would coach them through their stage fright or offer to help them with their skits. One of the SNL commenters created, he kind of held the show together. He gave to everybody and demanded very little. He was very low maintenance. Phil never had an ounce of competition. He was a team player, and it was a privilege for him, I believe, to play support and do it very well. He was never insulted, no matter how small the role may have been.
0: Phil Hartman, the glue. We call Phil the glue because he holds the show together. Without the glue, there's trouble.
1: Some of the original characters that Phil created for SNL included Eugene, the anal retentive chef, and unfrozen caveman lawyer. Impressions that he became really well known for included Frank Sinatra, Ronald Reagan, Ed McMahon, Barbara Bush, Charlton Heston, Kelsey Grammer, Michael Caine, Oliver Stone, Phil Donahue, Telly Savalas, Barry Humphreys, Bill Clinton, and Kirk Douglas. Maybe some of those characters and impersonations I just listed are familiar to you. Maybe not. But anyone who was watching SNL in the early 90s remembers his impersonation of Bill Clinton. He premiered this impression on an appearance of The Tonight Show. After that, Bill Clinton started appearing on SNL repeatedly, it became one of the most requested characters in the show. Phil once again, was able to fully embody a character when he played Bill Clinton. He wasn't just speaking or looking like them. He was able to perfectly capture Bill's hand gestures, mannerisms, and the raspiness in his voice.
0: Well, I just want to mingle with the American people, talk with some real folks, maybe get a Diet Coke or something. <laughs> All right, fine, but please don't tell Mrs. Clinton. Jim, let me tell you something. There's going to be a whole bunch of things we don't tell, Mrs. Clinton.
1: (laughs) Phil was nominated for an Emmy in his part of writing SNL in 1987. And when he was nominated again in 1989, he took the award home. It was his work as Bill Clinton that put Phil on the radar for a number of other gigs. He ended up with many offers lined up and called it quits on SNL. In 1995, he was cast in a lead role of the NBC sitcom News Radio. In the show, he played a vain, self-centered radio host by the name of Bill McNeil. By then, of course, Bill was a household name, and he was offered a broad range of other feature and cameo roles, too. After being asked to voice a one-time character in The Simpsons, the writers enjoyed his work so much that they created a whole new part just for Phil. He went on to appear in 52 episodes of The Simpsons. You're probably familiar with these characters from The Simpsons as well, Lionel Hutz and Troy McClure. He also voiced Duffman in one episode and countless other background characters. When he was asked about his work on The Simpsons, Phil said, quote, it's the one thing I do in my life that's almost an avocation. I do it for the pure love of it. I'm just going to list off a bunch of other movies Phil also appeared in in the 90s, some of which I'm sure you'll be familiar with. Coneheads, Jingle All the Way, Housed Guest, Cheech and Chong, Three Amigos, Dennis the Menace, The Smurfs, and So I Married an Axe Murderer. The last one, which also starred another SNL cast member, Mike Myers. He was also in TV shows like Third Rock from the Sun and The John Cat Show, as well as countless commercials, which included McDonald's and Soda Brands. Everywhere you turned in comedy in the 90s, Phil Hartman was either in the show or writing for the show. Not only was he a comedic genius, but he also was a genuinely good guy who was a pleasure to work alongside. He was a laid-back person who wasn't there to get rich or be famous, but instead to make people laugh and do what he loved doing. Once again, Phil's career was taking off, and this time, his home life was about to do the same. Taking us back to 1987, as Phil's career was really launching, he met the woman who would become his third wife, Bryn Amdahl. They met on a blind date. Brynn was a model and an aspiring actress from Minnesota. Phil had just been signed to SNL. Again, Brynn was from Minnesota and was born into a small town, but she had big town dreams. She was born Vicky Omdahl, but changed her name repeatedly over the years as she tried to gain a name for herself in modeling and acting. She really was Phil's dream girl. She had long blonde hair. She was beautiful, confident, and self-assured. What she saw in Phil was a successful man a decade older than her who was quiet and reserved and was going to support her aspirations too. Many of the interviews for the documentary talk about how Phil had really felt like he had finally met the one. That this third time was going to be the charm. The pair married in fall of 1987 and they welcomed their first child, Sean Edward Hartman, into the world. Three years later, in 1989, their daughter Bergen was born. The family was complete. Unfortunately, behind that perfect family exterior, Bryn and Phil's marriage was far from healthy. Phil was becoming hugely successful, but Bryn's career had completely stalled. She was repeatedly being turned down for roles in movies and shows that she auditioned for and wasn't booking any modeling jobs. Even when Phil would call in favors from his connections, she didn't seem to be able to achieve the status she aspired to be. One of these times when Phil was pulling his connections, somebody asked, well, is she funny? And he answered, in her own way. In time, this seemed to build up resentment in Brynn towards Phil. Here was a guy who didn't really want the fame, but was getting it. And she was a wife that desperately wanted to be noticed and couldn't seem to get her foot further in the door. Then, of course, there was the relationship side of things. We know from Phil's previous marriages that his work and creativity were a priority, even over his marriages. This didn't necessarily reflect how he felt about Bryn, though, because in multiple interviews, they joke about how Phil would often say something akin to, how did a chunky guy like me end up with a babe like that? On top of all of this, Bryn had her own personal struggles. She had ongoing issues with drugs and alcohol. She'd become sober before meeting Phil. But after they were married, she struggled in her recovery. She began to rely more heavily on those vices she had once managed to overcome. She began to drink and reached out to people she had once purchased cocaine and other drugs from. With that, cocaine was her drug of choice. And in Hollywood, it was really easy to come by. Brynn eventually went to rehab and became sober again. Unfortunately, it didn't last, though. Brynn's friend Shelly from L.A. comments that, Quote, Bren didn't have her own identity. She was a little confused and lost in the Phil Hartman game. I understand her need to spruce up her exterior because she didn't think she had an interior. Phil was supportive of Brynn getting help and booked her in for a number of stints in rehab, but she returned home. The cycle began again. It wasn't just her struggling career and battle against addiction that plagued Bren during her marriage to Phil. She became obsessed with the thought that Phil was having an affair. She was fiercely jealous and would try to isolate him from any woman who came into his life. She went so far as to hiring somebody to follow Phil and track his every movement. All they really came back with, though, was pictures of Phil with his guy friend and Catalina. No women, no infidelity. Bryn's jealousy really came out when their first child, Sean, was born. Phil's second wife, Lisa, sent a letter to Phil and Brent to congratulate them. Lisa describes it as, quote, the most hideous vitriol you can imagine. I called Phil and said, do you have any idea who you're married to? And he said, you should have seen the letter she wanted to send. Lisa would later ask Phil, does she have a gun? To which Phil said, yeah, for protection. Phil, of course, wasn't oblivious to Brent's jealousy, but he was desperate to make this marriage work for both of them and the kids. As the years went on, Bryn's behavior continued to deteriorate. Sometimes it got so bad that Phil would take his kids and stay with friends as he was worried that they weren't safe around her. She would often attack Phil physically and verbally. She would slap him and throw objects at him, destroying belongings, all while accusing him of sleeping with colleagues and other women. At one point, Bryn's attitude towards Phil got so bad that he considered retiring early, giving up the work that he loved so dearly just so that they could be together and mend what was broken in their relationship. Bryn's friends recall that it felt like at this time, Bryn's frustration stemmed from her not feeling like she had her own identity. When she first met Phil, she had an expectation that their stars would grow alongside each other. We know now though that
0: that's not what happened. She was a stay-at-home mom while Phil's career flourished. Clearly things were not going well in the Hartman household, but they were about to get infinitely worse. Let's go to May 1998. On May 27, 1998,
1: Brynn went out for drinks at Buca de Beppo with her friend Christine. Nothing really seemed out of the ordinary, and while Brynn wanted to stay out, Christine was ready to go home. The two said their goodbyes. The bartender who served him that night and had a great rapport with both Brynn and Phil recalled that, quote, the only thing unusual was that she was there without Phil. They were smiling and laughing. When they both left around 9.45, Bryn said, I'll be back real soon, and I'll be sure to bring Phil next time. Bryn ends up going to her friend Ron's house before then going home. When she arrived home, Phil and Bryn got in a heated argument. With this not being something new for the pair at this time in their relationship, there wasn't really anything exceptional about the fight, and Phil went to bed. At around 3 a.m. the following morning, Bryn entered their bedroom where Phil was sound asleep. Using a 38 caliber handgun, she shot him once between the eyes, once in his throat, and once in the upper chest. Wren then left their Encino home with the children that sleep inside. Again, this is the middle of the night, very early morning hours. She returned to her friend Ron Douglas's house, the same friend that she spent some time with after she left Buca de Beppo. She told Ron that she killed Phil. Understandably, Ron was shocked and he didn't really believe that this could be true. It was clear to Ron that Brynn was in distress. He told her that he would take her back to the house, make sure she got home safely and check out what exactly was going on. Ron and Brynn then left to go to the Hartman home, Ron following Brynn alone in his car. During that drive, Bryn got a call from another friend and confessed again to killing Phil. When the pair arrived, Ron saw Phil's body and realized that what Bryn had said was true. He called the police immediately. By then, it was 6.20 a.m. The police arrived minutes later and escorted Ron and two sleepy children out of the home. The kids were uninjured and completely unaware of what had unfolded. As the officers escorted the children out the front door, they heard one single gunshot. They re-entered the home and found that Bryn had locked herself in that same bedroom where Phil's body lay. She put the gun in her mouth and shot herself, dying instantly. Upon reflection, friends of the couple say that their marriage had its ups and downs like any other, but that there was no indication that things were going to take such a tragic and violent turn. Just a few weeks before the murder, one of Phil's colleagues had asked Phil about how things were going at home, and he replied, as good as it's ever been. Christine, the friend who was at Buca de Beppo that night with Bryn, said that they spoke of future plans to meet up again. It's definitely fair to assume that people who are having marriage difficulties don't always share those intimate details with friends, and that seems to be the case in the marriage of Brynn and Phil. When they were out in public, they held hands and looked like any married couple with two kids in a hectic schedule. But Phil did make comments to friends like, I go into my cave and she throws grenades to get me out. A friend also commented that, quote, Phil was always very open with the public, but at home, he retreated inside. It seems that the challenges he had in his second marriage repeated in his third, but this time there were children and the pair wanted to try and make it work. Marriage difficulties still don't seem to be an adequate explanation for how Brynn went from someone who was having a casual drink with her friend to standing over her husband's sleeping body and murdering him. Toxicology testing gave a few more answers. It revealed that Brynn had an alcohol level of point one two percent She also had traces of cocaine and prescription antidepressant Zoloft in her blood. While it's very well studied and understood that Zoloft can help with symptoms of depression, panic attacks, OCD, and PTSD, it's also known to help improve sleep and reduce anxiety, but when mixed with alcohol, it can become toxic and dangerous. Add cocaine to that mix, like Bryn had in her system, it amplified the side effects, and it could have potentially contributed to a complete psychotic break. And again, the couple fought that night. It's not exactly public knowledge what the fight was about, but a friend commented that it may have been about drug use. He made it very clear that he was going to have a zero tolerance policy when it came to her addiction. This friend is quoted saying he had made it very clear that if she started using drug skin, that would end the relationship.
0: We'll never really know what happened that night or what caused Brynn to do what she did. But whatever the cause, Phil's death and Brynn's suicide had a lingering aftermath.
1: Phil's murder inspired an outpouring of tributes for the talented comedian. His friends gathered soon after they heard the news of the murder and shared their stories of working alongside him. They all agreed that Phil's greatest gift was his ability to make people laugh. They wanted to honor him by continuing that legacy through their memories of him. The producers of news radio expressed how Phil, quote, was blessed with a tremendous gift for creating characters that made people laugh. Everyone who had the pleasure of working with Phil knows that he was a man of tremendous warmth, a true professional and loyal friend. Bryn's friends paid her similar tributes. Despite her actions at the end of her life, they recalled how she was a devoted and loving mother. She loved to take her kids to and from their various activities, and while she had dreamed of a life in the limelight, she relished in her job as a mother. After Phil's murder, the children they both loved very much were taken in by Brynn's sister and husband. This new home brought them to the Midwest, far from the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. Phil's will left everything in a trust to the two children. They would be able to inherit this trust so long as they both completed four-year degrees in college. Brynn's brother went on to file a wrongful death lawsuit against Pfizer, the manufacturer of Zoloft. He also sued the children's psychiatrist who had initially provided samples of Zoloft to Brynn when she was attending an appointment with them. The case was settled out of court, and the money went to the Hartman children. Matt Groening, the creator of The Simpsons, later revealed that he was enjoying working with Phil so much that they were planning to create a live-action film about Phil's character on The Simpsons, Troy McClure. With Phil's death, unfortunately, the film never came to be. Matt didn't feel that anyone should play Troy McClure's character but Phil. At the time of his passing, Phil was actually just weeks away from working on another animated series by Matt Groening Futurama. He was going to be playing the role of Zap, which was also written specifically for Phil. That character did end up staying in the show and was played by Billy West after Phil's death. In 2012, Phil was inducted into Canada's Walk of Fame. In 2014, he was given a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame... And in 2015, he was ranked seventh in the Rolling Stones list of the greatest Saturday Night Live cast members in history. These awards and Phil's filmography cement his place in comedic
0: history. Until next time, be sure to follow us on our socials at the Murder Diaries pod and check out our Patreon for more Murder Diaries content. And don't forget, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old.